right on time. Let's get started. <laughs> if you will, let's start with our first hymn, uh, 155, either titled The Heavenly Vision or Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Gracious, wonderful, beautiful Lord, we just thank you so much for who you are. Lord God Almighty, as we open our service tonight, we ask that everything that we say, everything that we do, our very thoughts, Lord, glory and honor you. Lord, we just thank you for all you do, especially your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Somebody turn their phone off. Who was that? That was all right. Looking at the opportunities of the week. Oh, by the way, the deadline for the Easter flower order form is March thirty first. That's today. So, uh, if you want uh, to order these flowers, you uh, you can turn it into the office. Um, can they do that Monday, Pastor? Or is it? Yeah, we're giving you one day. So, on April Fool's Day, you can do it as well. Also, as uh, you know, a reminder that uh, you know the He's Alive concert is up at the Capitol Music Hall again Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, April twelfth, thirteenth, and fourteenth. 
And our uh, things this evening, uh, tonight at 6.30, we have our service that started four minutes ago. And then uh, Monday, uh, we do have the women's Bible study and grief share on Tuesday at 1 p.m. Chancel choir practice up at 6.30. Wednesday, uh, again, Bible study. Uh, and then um, the youth children's program, same time. And then Thursday, obviously, volleyball. Does anybody have this? Do you really need me to read these to you? Okay, I just want to make everybody can read here. And, and, and those that can't, somebody read it to them. I don't want to go through every one of these. I think you guys can read. Uh, is that it, Pastor? Wait, I guess I'm supposed to ask, is there any birthdays today or this week? Anybody? We got one? We got one back there? Linda. Whose? Linda. Linda's birthday? All right. All right. That, well, we got to sing happy birthday then. You got to play your own birthday song. <laughs> anniversaries any anniversaries coming up close or just past anybody's all right i guess this wasn't a good month for birthdays or anniversaries all right is that it i think that's all for me well we know we have to do our uh, collection so if uh, we'll have our volunteers <laughs> Father, we again come before your throne of grace. Lord, we bring these petitions, these gifts, Lord, and we ask you to bless them. Lord, we just thank you for all that you do. And we bring this small portion back to you. We ask you to bless it to your kingdom. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, everybody. There we go. <laughs> What's good? We got we got mumbling and talking going on out there. What's going on? What's <laughs> it was just a little delay. Well, I just don't need to. <laughs> well, rare, rarely is the Bible very flattering when it comes to its assessment of humanity. Uh, Hosea 6 and 7 aren't going to flatter anybody tonight. God describes Israel through his prophet Hosea as a morning cloud in 6-4, a heated oven in 7-4, a half-baked cake in 7-8, a confused old man in 7-9, a silly dove without sense in 7-11, a nation of self-absorbed 
prayers in 714 and a treacherous bow in 716. But the startling or troubling thing for us is that Israel functions here as a picture of all humanity. In 6-7, God says that like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So Israel is behaving like Adam, the father of the whole human race. A pattern is being repeated. In other words, while it might be easier to look at Israel from the outside and evaluate what they were doing, they were simply being human beings. They're acting like humans act. Humans whose father is the one who disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden and because of whom we have sin and iniquity in our DNA from the moment of our conception. And if the message of Hosea is to have its intended effect on us, we'll have to see ourselves at some point in Hosea's portrait of Israel. God described the desperate condition of Israel in her sin as ultimately the result of her humanity. But... There is hope for human beings because God desires mercy and not sacrifice. So let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would be with us tonight, Lord, that you would watch over my mind and my mouth, Lord, that I might speak clearly from your word. Please, Father, guide me, guide every sentence, every step. Lord, I pray that you would enable everyone to listen, to hear what you are saying to us Father, what I have to say is irrelevant. It is what you are saying in your word that matters most for your people. And so, God, I ask for your help tonight for me and for everyone here. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read chapter 6, verse 4. He says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Remember in verses 1 through 3, God had pleaded with His people to return to the Lord, or Hosea, I'm sorry, had pleaded with His people to return to the Lord, to repent. But it would appear from these verses that if there had been any response, it was very short-lived. God immediately compares their love to a morning cloud. It's like dew that goes early or goes away early. In other words, it doesn't last. Look at 5 and 6. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Look at how God reveals His pain over them in verse 4. That's what those questions portray. I, I what am I supposed to do with you? What am I going to do with you? He's asking to them. He longs to embrace them, but they refuse to return with any sincerity. While God's covenant love is steadfast, their love is fleeting. If you remember 26 times in Psalm 136, we're told that the steadfast love of God remains forever. Israel's love, the people of, or the love of God's people for him disappears as quickly as it shows up. That's one of the accusations from back in 4.1. There was no steadfast love from them. In verse 5, the word of God He has spoken to Israel from Moses until now through all the prophets would hew and slay God's people. God's word has always been a sword. We like to say of that text, remember Hebrews 4, uh, the, the, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, dividing of joints and marrow and able to discern both the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We like to say that verse that, that the, the Word of God does surgery. You don't do surgery with swords. 
That you don't, you lay things wide open with a sword. You use a scalpel for surgery. The Word of God is a sword. It cuts us wide open. That's what it has always been doing. The Word of God reveals the human heart. It lays it open. Verse 6 might imply that the people responded in some way to Hosea's plea in verses 1 through 3, but it was superficial at best. And again, this is, this is stressed all throughout Hosea, much like it is in the opening half of Isaiah, that performing religious duties and even being careful to do them really well and really sincerely can be done without any true love for God whatsoever. Traditions can be carried out with consistency and earnestness often to deliberately hide the fact that there's no real love for God. And when that's the case, God rejects whatever the ritual is. God is not after Israel's work. He isn't after their sacrifices. He wants their love. Again, this is a marriage. What spouse wants one who performs all the duties of a marriage for them, but has no love for them? When there is no love for God, rituals become a burden to Him. Traditions become a burden in God's nostrils when there's no love for God that is driving them. God is not a deity like humans tend to create who can simply be pacified through rituals and offerings. The, the indictment against Israel is so stunning because it's based not on they've done something wrong in their religion. They don't love Him. Well, why does God care whether or not His people love Him? Because God is a God of grace, not a God of works. Israel was more than willing and able to perform rituals. Humans are always willing to do something that can check a box that doesn't require their heart or their whole self getting into it. It normally takes a lot to get us to give our heart to something, our whole selves to something. God wanted that in Israel, but look at verse 7 of chapter 6, and I'm going to read down through Verse 7 of chapter 7 here, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Notice that's a statement about their love, ultimately, because but contracts it or links it with verse 6. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood as robbers lie in wait for a man. So the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. These verses tell the tale of an assassination plot that was hatched by some drunk princes who grew more and more angry overnight, and in the morning they struck. The thing is, Israel was plagued by these kinds of wicked actions for years. Right? This is a culmination. In Hosea's time, 
King Zechariah was assassinated by Shalom in 2 Kings 15.10. Within a month of that, Shalom himself was assassinated by Menahem, who became king. That's 2 Kings 15.13-15. Menahem reigned for ten miserable years, was succeeded by his son, Pekahiah, who was then assassinated by Pekah. That's 2 Kings 15 still, verses 17 through 26. Then Pekah was assassinated by Hosea, not Hosea, Hosea. That's 2 Kings 15, 27 through 31. <clears throat> Hosea might be referring to any of these murders. 6, 8 may imply that he's thinking specifically of Pekahiah's assassination by Pekah because 50 men from Gilead, again, that's 6, 8, accompanied Pekah to assassinate Pekahiah, Right? why they're linked with bloodshed, but when he uses the plural, princes, rulers, kings, he's describing this pattern of assassination within the Israelite monarchy, and the end result is verse 7. All their kings have fallen, none of them calls upon me. And again, that seems ridiculous, right? That pattern seems ridiculous. It might be tempting to recoil at all this as we go through it, but we're meant to be reading all of these things in light of 6-7 and Adam. Right? This is not just a problem with Israel's descendants. It's a problem with Adam's descendants. It's a problem with all humanity. Where faithfulness to God is rejected, love and kindness for one another will fall. That's ultimately the reason for all violent crime. There is no love for God, which means there can't be any love for neighbor. In verses 10 and 11, these are horrible things to God. Golden calves were built at Dan and Bethel, and Israel isn't alone. Right, Judah is once again implicated here. A harvest of judgment, I think, is coming for them also. And all of it constitutes what at the end of chapter 6? Whoredom. Right? That, that word remains. That's what God continues to call their sin. When the desires of the flesh are pursued at the expense of love for God, it's spiritual adultery. It's whoredom every time. Whether you're performing rituals without love or it's outright murder, it's whoredom. That's how God sees Israel's sin. So when chapter 7 opens, it seems like God kept holding out His arms to heal them, but they continue to not want anything to do with it. All through Hosea, this husband pursues this wayward wife who is too consumed by her sin to embrace him back. The condition of Israel is desperate. In verses 2-7, through it's outlined again. Instead of condemning evil, the leaders delight and participate in it. In verses 3 and verse 5, the priests are involved in thieving back in 6.9. The kings celebrate in evil in 7.3. Everyone is complicit. And even when they get themselves into trouble in verse 7, they won't call out to God. And their passion for evil <clears throat> is so deep in them, it smolders in 7.6 without even having it stoked in verse 4. They're consumed by their own sin. The fire of sin burns stronger in us the more we give in to temptation. Israel is overcome. They are literally on fire in their sin and they struck the match. So from 6-6 six, six to 7-7, seven, seven, there's this focus on Israel's internal politics and all the plotting. But the focus in verses 8-16 through 16 is her foreign policy or how that affected her foreign policy. Spiritual infidelity breeds Political infidelity. Let me read 8 through 16 of chapter 7. <clears throat> Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. 
Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. So, despite God's perfectly proven track record of caring for Israel, verse 15, Ephraim, which is, again, another name for Israel, mixes with the nations in verse 8. They turn to Egypt, then Assyria for help in verse 11, while God longs to redeem them in verse 13. Since God has pressed the marriage motif throughout this book, picture that in physical terms if you can for the picture. All while the husband goes after the adulterous wife to bring her back to the place where she will be perfectly loved and cared for, she keeps trying to find that in lesser lovers, is what the accusation is. So God compares Ephraim, Israel, to a half-baked cake in verse 8, a cake not turned. Right? She'll be burnt on one side and entirely uncooked on another. By its association with God, Israel's not a pagan nation, but neither is it a holy nation. Right? So because Israel mixes herself with the people, it's unfit for displaying God's character among the nations. She isn't distinct enough to display God's character. And God compares her then to a deluded old man in verses 9 and 10. It, the, the imagery is very clear here. Imagine um, an obviously old man who acts like a teenager. It's annoying. I was just talking to my wife about this today. We're going to the gym in the morning, and for some reason, between 7.30 and 8 a.m. is the time for old men who talk entirely too loud about stupid things to gather in the gym and talk to each other out loud all the time like they're kids. It's so annoying. It's so annoying. It, it's, have you ever, <clears throat> you ever see those videos of really old people dancing? Like, it make, they, that make, makes me so mad. You, you reach an age where you shouldn't dance anymore. It's embarrassing. Like, stop it. And stop videoing it and putting it on the Internet. Stop it. Stop. My grandma likes to dance. Grandma, don't dance. If you're listening to this, I love you, but don't dance. Right? And don't film it. <clears throat> it's so weird, right? By the law of the Medes and the Persians, I am not dancing when I am old. All right? Just remember that. Tim Chester says there's something worse than an unfashionable middle-aged man. And that's a middle-aged man trying to be fashionable. That's, that's God's implication here. Israel is embarrassing itself trying to look like something it isn't. It's trying to look young when it's old, is the image God is painting here. David and Solomon aren't the kings anymore. Israel has no muscles to flex anymore. They might be materially prosperous during Hosea's time, but other nations were who didn't know God at all. It's, it's nothing for them to be bragging about. And that was about to end anyway. Right? She won't return to the Lord. God says she's like a senseless bird 
in verses 11 through 13 like a silly dove just flitting around everywhere, never settling, never committing. Right? They, they try to align themselves with Egypt. They try to buy off Assyria, never addressing the actual problem. They never address spiritual adultery. So it doesn't matter where they flitter or where they fly, God will catch them in His net. And God would redeem them in verse 13. He loves them. He's pursuing them to save Him, to save them, but they speak lies against Him. What do restless souls do? They lie like restless birds flutter about. They're like those who pray with self-absorbed hearts in verse 14, preoccupied with themselves. They don't cry to God from the heart of what their need is. And notice, they haven't stopped praying. You see that again. That comes up all the time in Hosea. They still pray, right? They still pray. They still perform the ritual. But it's just a self-pitying wail of, where are you? Why won't you fix this when they're in bed with other nations? They don't cry for God They cry for the wine God could give them. That's always been an issue when Jesus comes to say, I've not come to give bread, but to be bread. That's because that was always an issue. And please notice that. Their prayer lives are frequent, and their prayer lives are fervent, and it means nothing to God. Right? Nothing. Sometimes prayers are frequent and fervent because there's no peace, there's no hope, there's no faith. A wife secure in her relationship does not have to beg for her husband to love her. Right? Instead, Israel is like a faulty bow in verses 15 and 16. God had supplied them, and they use His provision of arrows in this metaphor against Him. They're like one of those... Um, rifles at a fairground game, right? You can, you can aim as straight as an arrow and pull the trigger and it will not hit the target. It's, it's a defective gun. God put his hands on their shoulders. He looked down the shaft of the arrow with them, whispering in their ear how to aim, how to shoot straight and true, and they kept moving their arms. They kept veering off. Now, we would have been safe to observe from afar in all this if it wasn't for six 7. Hosea is not just a prophet pronouncing God's judgment on Israel's condition. Hosea is a prophet revealing God's word regarding the entire human condition. We, we have to remember the function of the Old Testament prophets that is given to us in the New Testament. That they were speaking to us, proclaiming that forgiveness of sins would be found through repentance in Jesus Christ. That's what they're doing This text is what humanity is like. Beloved, humans go one way. We go one way left to ourselves. God planted us in a garden with beauty and provision, the likes of which can't be sufficiently described. He gave us one law, one guideline there when everything was perfect and we couldn't do it. And the effects of it have compounded to take us so far from that garden, we don't even know where it is anymore. Listen again to verses 6 and 7 of chapter 7. Listen to God's description of them. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. So the question is, what can be done for a people who deliberately set themselves on fire. Right? 
What can be done for a people who deliberately set themselves on fire? Think think back to chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Beloved, the sacrifices of sinners are irrelevant to God. They're irrelevant. God does not want burnt offerings from people who are on fire. Wouldn't that be silly? Wouldn't it be a letdown if God was so small as to be satisfied with the works of our hands when we're guilty? Right? Have you ever thought about why God desires steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of Him in our hearts rather than our continual sacrifices? The first reason is because He is God. This is God. Is His holiness so insignificant that the blood of a dead goat could atone for our mockery of that holiness? Like, that's enough? That does it? Just kill an animal? If God was merely some tribal deity whose wrath was assuaged by the blood of goats or virgins or whatever under the moonlight... The sacrifice of Jesus then is a tragic, unnecessary overreaction to our sinfulness. The only blood that could atone for our sins against God was God's blood. Now think about what that means. About how God takes sin. Every single sacrifice prior to the sacrifice of Jesus accomplished nothing except to act as a sign pointing to the one and only sacrifice that would mean anything. All God was doing in the sacrificial system was proclaiming that the cost of our redemption was blood. Right? The blood could run knee high. Hearts were not going to change. So a second reason God desires steadfast love and not sacrifice is because God is a God of grace. The performance of sacrifices was not a substitute for love. Right? It's, it was showing that the love isn't there. The performance of sacrifices was not a replacement for a relationship. It wasn't before and it isn't now. Right? Do not think by even your sincere effort to do good things that that is how God loves and accepts you. That your sacrifices now somehow are good to Him. God isn't interested in our sacrifices. Right? He isn't interested in our... That's why we offer up ourselves as what? Living sacrifices. Now, do you hear the irony in that from Romans 12, 1 and 2? We have stripped that verse of its grace so that we could have some skin in the game. You're supposed to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Right. How? By not dying. Living sacrifice. You don't die. You don't die to atone for your sins. That's not what you and I do. God doesn't require us to die for our sins. That's been done. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Not, I beseech you therefore, brethren, because of the mercies of God. That's different. Right? That's different. What's the difference? 
by the mercy of God means that God's mercy is the means by which we become living sacrifices. Because of the mercy of God leaves it all in the past and puts the onus on you and I to do something because of it. No. No. Presenting our bodies as living sacrifices is a spiritual act of worship. It isn't quantifiable. God isn't interested in that. Never has been. Most of us evaluate our, the, the sincerity of our relationship with God by how serious we are about making all these sacrifices. Sacrifices? You get God. What are we sacrificing? That's like saying, look, don't have this, um, oh, what's a, what's a horrible hamburger? Um, I don't know, everybody familiar with White Castle? Familiar enough? Okay, imagine me saying to you, listen, I want you to forego that White Castle tonight. And I want you to have a perfectly cooked prime rib. I want you to sacrifice that White Castle for that prime rib. You would think I was a looney tune. Right? I'm not sacrificing. I get it. Are you kidding me? Yes, I'll give up the White Castle. Give me the prime rib. That, yeah. Like, like, what can you sacrifice if what you get by losing is God? Spiritual act of worship, not physical. Spiritual. That's to look our covenant husband in the eye and say, take me. I am yours. Right? I belong to you. That's what God is after. Right, the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament has not been replaced by our works. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. That has never changed. That has never changed. God's mercy towards us in Jesus is the means through which He brings us into the relationship He has always desired to have with His people. Right? This is Jesus as our substitute, beloved. That's our hope. Right? It isn't now that God has a people that love Him perfectly. God has a Son that loves Him perfectly, and we are in Him. Yes, it takes all the power and control out of our hands. Right. That's why it feels so wrong. The relationship that we have is bought and paid for. It's bought and paid for. All the blood was already spilled. All the offering was already given. God requires no sacrifices now because the steadfast love he deserved has been given to him in Christ. John 10, 17. Us, human beings, we love fire. That's what we are. We like to pour gasoline all over ourselves, grab some lighter fluid and matches. We love sin. We love our flesh. How much do we still struggle? We struggle so much we don't even realize that we're struggling most of the time. We don't realize that most of the, the impulses we have and the things we say and the, the way we conduct ourselves is all self-absorbed nonsense. We don't even realize it. We, we live so far from the relationship we say we have with Christ, if that's what we're depending on to make us holy, we're, we, we're crazy. Right? We, we need to read Hosea if, if that's what we think. Right? This, God has His hand on us through His Word, enabling us all the time to look right down the scope, and we just cannot hold steady. We just can't hold steady. We smolder in our sin. And not because someone else is stoking the fire, but because we are. 
Right? We do what we want to do. Yes, let me burn in it. Let me walk right into this thing I know is killing me and making my life miserable. Give me more of it. Let me drink it down. We are a race of sinister pyromaniacs. And before you think, isn't that a little much, at least I didn't call you a whore. Right? Like God does. Yeah, it's offensive. Yeah. But God gets to give the labels. We need to own them or we'll never run to Him for rescue. Beloved, there is hope for pyromaniacs, for people who love fire. There is hope for whores. That's what the Bible is telling us. There isn't a sentence in it that isn't relevant to you and me. Right? I'm not saying we're always as bad as we can be. I understand that. We're not. But I guarantee you we are worse than we think we are. Right? And that, that's the place grace has to go. Right? Or the gospel never takes hold. It, it just, it just becomes this thing out there that somehow is a statement about how we're different from the world. The gospel is a statement about Jesus Christ. In light of what the world actually is. If God ultimately required our sacrifices, do you hear the word of the Lord tonight? If God ultimately required our sacrifices, you understand we'd be hopeless, right? You understand we'd be hopeless. Look, the point here is that all that religious fervor and effort and ceremony and ritual isn't enough. It's not what he wants. He didn't institute it because that's what he wanted. He instituted it so that he could show them what he did actually want from us. And we can't give it. Thus, the need for blood. And all the blood of animals, it was never enough blood. Right? It's, this is God we're talking about. He's not assuaged by a beaver pelt. Right? This, this, this is God. It would take the blood of his son to be satisfied. Right? He, he's not out there exacting double payment. Right? He's satisfied with what his son offered to him. You and I aren't adding to it. We're living in it. Our hope rests in the fact that he longs to be in a relationship with us based on his grace and not based on our offerings. Think about this. How tenuous and awkward would a marriage be where the only thing really holding it together was a wife's ongoing ability to give her husband the right presence. Right? Can you imagine if our relationship or our standing with God was based for a moment on our works? God wanted us to know that His love and mercy are the basis of why we are united to Him. He didn't want us thinking it was based on what we contribute. That's why he abolished that system once the perfect sacrifice had finally been offered because the point was made. The point was made. We, we set ourselves on fire. You let us go for a moment, we're going to find matches and gasoline. Jesus, however, is fireproof. Jesus is that fourth man walking in the fire with us every moment so that when we finally come through, we don't even smell like smoke. Beloved, there is hope for human beings 
only because God desires mercy and not sacrifice. There is hope for human beings only because God is finally saying, I don't want anything from you. Instead, I desire to give you everything. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that makes us what we are. That's the hope that holds us steady. That's the only source of peace, is is, is the character of God. He desires steadfast love, not sacrifice. Right. So what does that mean? Steadfast love for me can't be a sacrifice. Right? Do, you, do you see that? You see the categories created there. He's not looking for what you can contribute. That kind of Christianity creates a certain kind of people. We don't want to be that kind of people. We want to be the kind of people who realize I have this relationship with God because of who God is and what God has done and what Jesus has done for me and what Jesus gives to me. See, when, that, when, when that's who you are, when that's who you are, your ongoing struggle with fire, it won't rule you. It, it can't destroy you. When that's who we are, when that's our song, evangelism becomes easy right because all the pretense is gone easy might be a little much to say evangelism is hard but when you realize you're not trying to sell a bill of goods you're you're talking about it's all free it's all free that's what we're inviting people into it's all free Right, you, you. Let me close with this. I know a lot of times, and I, I don't. I don't want to make it sound like I'm uh, belittling this practice. That's not my point at all. But if, if you, if you want to bring people to something, what do you do? Don't charge them. Right, <laughs> free food, free stuff, and they'll come in droves. Right, and, and listen, that's again, that's not a character evaluation. It's, it's an illustration. This is what we have for the world. This, that's the message. No, no, no. It's, it's free. Come on. It's all free. Right? That's the message. And instead, what are we, what are we often trying to peddle? You know, I, I, I used to be like this, uh, but God got a hold of me and now I'm like this. And if God gets a hold of you, you can be like me too. Uh, no thanks. Right? No thanks. I, it, Where's the hope in that? Because what happens 10 years down the road when I'm not as good as you look? Right? It's, no, it's, it's free. This, this book is a book for people who are on fire. Right? It's, Jesus heals. Jesus washes. Jesus saves. Completely. The best of us and the worst of us. So I'll be down front if you need to come and pray for any reason as we sing. I'll be there to pray with you. Let me close this here. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, God, for your truth. It, it, your word is always a sword. It's always a sword. It just, Father, let us be a people who let your word do what it does. It, it lays us open. That's not pleasant. But, oh, Father, you heal you mend. 
by that same word. So, Father, I pray for everyone in the room tonight, myself included, because we are in need of you, Father. These are the things that we want to have in our hearts deeper than anything else. So I pray this for your people. I pray this for our church. And I pray this for our town, for our valley, for our state, Lord, for our nation, for our world. Save, Father, we pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn is 342. Take time to be holy. Just the first stanza.